I want to um, continue with uh, the series that we have been teaching on the life of God. I want to talk to you this morning about living in the Word. Um, John chapter 10 and verse 10, we've used several uh, text scriptures, and if you haven't been here for some of the, the teaching, some of the, the previous messages in the series, I would really encourage you to get them uh, and, and meditate on these scriptures and make notes of them. Uh, so I'm not going to go to all of them, but, um, but I'm kind of going to kind of going to go in a different direction this morning. Um, John chapter 10, verse 10 is one of the scriptures that we used where Jesus is contrasting his work and the work of the devil. He said, the thief cometh not but for to kill, to steal and to destroy. That's the devil's job description. Anything the devil's tempting you to do is for the purpose of stealing from you, killing or destroying something in your life. It may look good. The Bible talks about the pleasures of sin for a season. There may be temptations that look good to, you know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes type thing. There might be a draw, a physical draw. But everything the devil does is intended to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, but I am come that you might have life. Now notice the contrast to killing, stealing, and destroying is life. I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. We've made uh, mention throughout this series about uh, the different words that are used in the New Testament for life. There are four different words in the Greek uh, New Testament. The, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. There are four different words that are used in the Greek language. And uh, most of them have to do with either human life, human existence, or uh, behavior. And most of the church focuses on the behavior part. But every time Jesus is talking about life, meaning the life of God or something related to the life of God, for example, John 5, 26, it says, as the Father has life in himself, so is he given unto the Son to have life in himself. What, what kind of life does God have? How could you describe or how could you define the God kind, or the, the kind of life God has other than calling it the God kind of life? He's the author of life. He's the originator. He was here before anything else was ever made. And so whatever life he has would have to be the God kind of life. He has to be used as the source or the definition of the term itself. So when Jesus is talking about life, and this word, this Greek word zoe, Z-O-E, is used to describe this God kind of life, he's talking about something that God has that man does not. And he said, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, what does that mean? Folks, one of the most famous modern day speeches ever made or, or made in the last century, I guess, at least, was Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. August 19, August 28th, I think it was 1963. Well, in that he described the dream that he had for America. Well, God has a dream for the world. God's dream for the world is to indwell every human being. Now, what does that mean? That means to infuse or impart his life into mankind to produce the same characteristics in you that it has produced or the same characteristics that exist in him. Now, Jesus is the only example that we have of that. And Jesus marveled. The world caused the world to marvel at the life that he lived. Nobody could understand what was what it was that was different about him. The Bible even says that Jesus didn't look so handsome or so tall or so movie star like that it would be that it was his appearance that drew people to him. Well, what drew them then? If it wasn't his physical appearance, if it wasn't his outward uh, manner or whatever it was, what was it that drew people to him? Very simply, it was the life of God. And that life of God enabled him to do miracles, 
It enabled him to heal the sick. It enabled him to experience victory in every situation. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 63, he said, the flesh profits nothing, but the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. What I want you to understand this morning, folks, is that the source of the life of God is the word. Now, that may be the most simple thing that I have ever said, maybe the most simple thing that I have ever said or ever will say. But the fact is, you can't get anything deeper than that. The life of God is the word of God. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Well, if the word was God and God never changes, then the word's still God today. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean the book that's sitting in your lap is God? No, it means those are the words of God and therefore his words carry power. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is quick and powerful. King James says quick and powerful. Another translation says full of life and power. I want you to think about something. Think about how much of the, the church world, how much of Christianity, Christians worldwide, are praying for God to do something powerful in their lives when all the time the power is in the word. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 5. You know, the Bible even says in 1 Peter 1, 23, it says we're even born again by the word of God. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible seed of the word of God. You are born again. The life of God is imparted unto you because of the word of God. Well, when do we think that that, start, that changed? If we're born of God by the word of God, then why do we think the word stops having power once you're born again? Yet that's where most of the church world is. Most of the church world accepts the fact that Jesus is the risen Savior. They've confessed him as their Lord and Savior. They've become born again, even though a lot of people don't like to term born again Christians. By the way, people that don't like to talk about Jesus, I'm talking about Christians, Christians that don't like to talk about Jesus, Christians that don't like to identify themselves as born again, that's just a clear indication that they're out of fellowship with God. There was a point in time where I would talk about God. When I was in college, I'd talk about God, but I wouldn't talk about Jesus. You know why? Because I knew I wasn't walking in fellowship with him. And I didn't want anybody or anything to remind me that I was in fellowship with God. So I'd talk about God because God's this this all-encompassing term. It can mean anything or nothing, depending on who's using it and what they mean. But you talk about Jesus, that gets personal. Now, I want you to notice something. Here it says... In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, notice it says, For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Whatsoever is born of God. I used to wonder, why does that say whatsoever instead of whosoever? And many other translations just translate it that way, for whosoever is born of God. Well, certainly, whosoever is born again is born of God, right? So it's talking about people that are born again. But people are not the only thing that was born of God. The Word is born of God, too. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Not only is it saying those who have the life of God in them are a world overcomers, it's saying every word of God will overcome the world in every situation that exists. For whatsoever or whosoever, whichever way you like it, doesn't matter to me, overcomes uh, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. The world overcome means to conquer. Whosoever is born of God, that's talking about people, conquers the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Notice it doesn't say this is the fight, this is the weapon, this is the battle. It says this is the victory. The word victory is the word conquest. So whosoever is born of God conquers the world, and this is your conquest. 
This is the victory or the conquest that overcomes or conquers the world, even our faith. Now, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So we could and probably should insert here, whosoever is born of God overcomes or conquers the world, and this is the conquest that that conquers the world, even our faith in his word. Now, I said before, God's got a dream for mankind. His dream for mankind is to impart his life to every human being so that that human being, every person, every person, mature child of God, baby child of God, brand new born again baby, it doesn't matter, that every person that has the life of God in them exercises the victory that Jesus won over the devil in every aspect of their life. Do you realize that God wants you, because of that abundant life that's been given to us, God wants you to have control of every aspect of your life? He does not want you to be subject to sin and death in any manner, in any measure. That's what the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us is all about. Well, Pastor Mike, that sounds too good to be true. That's the way Jesus lived. And Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. Show me any place in the, in, except on the cross when Jesus laid down his life. Show me any place that Jesus was subject to sin and death. When he was hungry, the angels fed him. When he needed money, there was a fish that came up from the sea with a coin in his mouth. When he needed more food, he multiplied loaves and fishes. When he didn't have a way to get across the sea, he walked on it. Show me anything, any aspect, any way whatsoever that Jesus was subject to the law of sin and death. Show me anything that the hindrances of this world kept him back. Now, see, when you say things like that, some people think you're saying, well, that means we'll never have any problems. Folks, Jesus' life was full of problems. But he overcame every one of them. He conquered every one of them. When he said that I've I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly, he's talking about that you'd live like me in even greater measure. Because he knew that we would have something that wasn't available under the old covenant. He's talking about an abundant life. And how could the life of God be more abundant than what Jesus existed or Jesus lived if he's not talking about everybody having it and everybody operating in it? See, God's original plan when he put man here on the earth was that man would be filled with his spirit in the sense that he breathed the breath of life into him. The life of God was already imparted to Adam and Eve. And without sin, they would have lived an idyllic existence. Now, Satan was still here on the earth. God told Adam and Eve, guard and protect the dress and keep the garden. That means guard and protect it. So if there was no enemy, there was nothing to dress and keep it or guard and protect it from. So the devil was still here. We're not talking about the life of God that removes the traces of the devil from the earth. It just removes his power in your life. Whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is your victory, not your fight. Not even your weapon. This is your victory. Faith in God's word. You know one thing about uh, Martin Luther King's speech? I have a dream. 250,000 people, they report, showed up in Washington before the days of the Internet where you could coordinate stuff. No social media, no spreading the word. 250,000 people showed up in Washington to hear him give his I have a dream uh, speech. God tells us what his dream is, but God also says, I've got a plan. God not only has a dream, God has a plan. And that plan is for you to receive Jesus as the Lord of your life, for you to be born again, recreated in spirit, and then a, and then learn a brand new way to live. 
Now, here's the real rub. If you accept that God's dream is to impart life, miracle life, that would be the God's kind of life, wouldn't it? If God's plan, if God's dream is to impart miracle life, how come that miracle life that we've received doesn't keep us free from the law of sin and death? Because it doesn't take a genius to look around and realize the church is dominated by sin and death. Well, that wasn't God's idea. That wasn't his original plan. What's the real problem here? The problem is that man has not learned how to live according to the power of God. Turn back with me to John chapter 6. I quoted um, verse 63, I think it was. But I want you to see the context of, of what Jesus is talking about here. John chapter 6, he's speaking to the Jews. Always his favorite crowd. I'm talking about the religious Jews. Verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of Zoe, the God kind of life. Now, he's using himself as an example of manna that came down from heaven in the Old Testament. They understood that. They understood that that miracle, uh, that manna was a miracle that happened day after day after day. And Jesus is equating himself with that. He said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Verse 38, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Verse 41, then the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, well, we know his father and we know his mother. How can he have come down from heaven? Notice Jesus said in verse 43, Jesus answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 45 is what I want you to see. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that has heard and has learned of the Father cometh unto me. The problem is this. Even after you're born again, there's still a learning process. There's still things that we need to be taught of God. Now, what do we need to be taught of God? We need to be taught a new way to live. We need to be taught a new way to live. What is that new way to live? That new way to live is to live by the word, by the instruction of the word, and to believe what the word says, no matter what we see or feel. This is the victory. Whosoever is born of God overcomes the world, conquers the world. That means conquers financial lack. That means conquers sickness. That means conquers adversity, trouble, anything the devil throws at you. It means conquers any and every, every part, any, any and every aspect of the devil's work in the earth. Whosoever is born of God overcomes the world, conquers the world. And this is the victory. This is your conquest that conquers the world even your faith in his word. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus said that we were going to live or should live his kind of life. He said he came to bring his life to us. He said the works that we do, shall, shall uh, the works that he did, we shall do also. So let's see what happened when Jesus met adversity. Let's see how Jesus dealt with problems in life. Verse 1, then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That's a bad translation. It literally says he was led of the Spirit where he was tempted of the devil, not for the purpose of being tempted of the devil. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to spend time with God. It was after spending that time with God that the devil came at him, just like he does for you. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he would, it was afterward a hungered. 
And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Folks, I want you to understand something. The devil almost always comes with questions. The devil never tempts you with things that you know. And you'll find that everybody that ever overcomes, successfully overcomes temptation, adversity, problems in life, they always go back to what they know. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know everything. And there's a lot of questions the devil asked me that I put on the shelf. Because I don't know. But I do know this. I know if he can get me stuck on the things that I don't know, he can keep me from operating in the things that I do know. And the things that I do know are the things that will lead me into victory. It amazes me how many people bring the devil's questions to me. Pastor Mike, what about this? What about it? Who cares? Does it change what the Bible says? Why are you even thinking that? But oh, it's such a, it's such a temptation for people to bring the devil's questions. Well, I was just wondering about this. Who cares? I had somebody that was standing against sickness and they came to me and said, Pastor Mike, who do you think the Antichrist is? Does that really matter in, as far as you receiving your healing? Tell you what, you take hold of your healing, get that out of the way, and then we'll talk about the Antichrist. But the devil will try to distract you in any way, in every way that he can. People get tied up in all kinds of things that are only intended by him, by the enemy, to distract you so that you don't operate on what you know. So the devil came to him and said, if you be the son of God, command that these stones be turned to bread. Now, there's nobody else around. Nobody would know. Jesus knows who he is. Here's a good opportunity for him to prove it to the devil, isn't it? Uh, By the way, the devil's not asking because he doesn't know. If thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written. I want you to notice how Jesus handled the work of the devil against him. Here's how Jesus handled adversity. Here's how Jesus handled temptation. Here's how Jesus handled every problem, every aspect of the law of sin and death that came against him. He answered it with the word. He said, it is written. Now, if Jesus, the son of God, who had the spirit without measure, who could have turned the stones into bread, if his focus in life is to confess the word, how much more important is that for you and me? But how many Christians do you know of that do that? I can guarantee this. The ones that are walking in failure and defeat certainly don't. They're the ones that are complaining about other people that are saying, confess the word. That's always amazed me. You get these preachers, bless their hearts. The Lord reward them for their works, as he will all of us. But you get preachers on national TV and radio and all this kind of stuff talking about those of us that are confessing the word and encouraging other people to confess the word. And I'm looking at their lives and I'm thinking, so you want people to follow you? Your success? Seriously? I never ever understood that. Sometimes my kids will say, Something that that they know is wrong, that I know is wrong, and I'll just ask them, what genius did you get that from? And it always turns out to be somebody that's in worse shape than us. It always turns out to be somebody that's not walking in the blessing of God. And I ask my kids, so what do you want, what they've got or what we've got? 
Come on. Use your brain. There's one in there. It may be small, but use it still. Jesus said, it is written. Here's how Jesus handled problems in his life. He confessed the word. Now, where did he learn that? And why did he do that? We know at age 12, we don't know a lot about his upbringing, but we know at age 12, he's sitting in the temple after his parents go to the to Jerusalem for the sacrifice. You remember the story? They leave thinking he's in the crowd and he's not. And three days later, they find him sitting in the middle of the temple. And at age 12, he's answering questions that the rabbis don't have answers for. And he's asking them questions that they can't answer. And they are amazed. They are just floored with the wisdom of this kid. Apparently, they don't remember him. Some 18 years later, when he comes back on the scene. But they are shocked at this kid. How did he know what he knew? He was taught of the Lord. He received the instruction of his father. Now we see the result of that instruction. People that are taught of the Lord confess the word. People that are taught of the Lord take their problems, take their situations. Jesus didn't stop and say, hold that thought. Now, Father, you know I'm hungry. I need food. He didn't go to prayer. He didn't stop to think about it. He simply confessed the word. Now, one thing about what he's confessing that we need to take into account here is that he's saying, Mr. Devil, Nothing is ever going to be more important to me than the word. Not only is he confessing the word about the importance that the word should have in our lives, he's identifying, here's what place it holds with me. Why? Because he's taught of the Lord. His parents didn't have this. His parents didn't know this. He didn't get this at home. Where did he get it? He got it from God. He got it from his heavenly father. Well, if we're supposed to follow Jesus' example, if we're supposed to be Christians, which means Christ-like, shouldn't we be like him in this? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, he's saying nothing, my physical needs, my physical wants, nothing is ever going to be more important to me than the word. Well, then what should we do when we face lack? We should say it is written. We should say it is written. And every time you do, every time you confess what the word says, whatever your situation is, if you're confessing, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory, what you're saying is, I'm putting the word first. Well, that didn't satisfy the devil. So he took to the next one. Then the devil took him up to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. I don't believe he transported him. I believe this was a mental thing. I believe it was an image or an imagination just like he comes against us. And said to him, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now what's the temptation? The temptation is how you look before other people. How many times does the devil tempt people and say, well, if you've got the power of God and if the name of Jesus will heal in every case, go to the hospital and do your work. What is that? It's the same temptation here. 
how you look in front of other people. Jesus wasn't concerned about the devil helping him make a name for himself. So Jesus answered, said again unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now he's not saying to the devil, You shouldn't be tempting me. He's saying, For me to do that would be tempting God. Why? Because God didn't tell him to do it. So here's two times where Jesus is taking the same approach to the temptation. Different temptations, different situations, same approach. It is written again. He's still confessing the word. Why? Because that's what he was taught from his heavenly father to do. Now here's the problem, folks. Here's the reason why the church is weak and impotent in the world. We're born again. We've got the life of God within us. We've got a reservoir of the power of God, the unlimited power of God. But if you're not taught of the Lord to operate the way Jesus did, which we see the example here, he answered problems with the word. He confessed the word in the face of lack. He confessed the word in the face of temptation. He confessed the word in the face of adversity. Well, what are we doing? If we're not doing the same thing he did, we can't expect the same results he got. This is not Burger King. You don't get to have it your way. Verse 8, again, the devil took him up to an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. By the way, all the kingdoms of the world, meaning world governments, must be under the devil's control. That's something to keep in mind when you go vote. And said unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship, worship me. Luke's account says, for they have been delivered unto me. Well, who delivered them unto Satan? Adam did. Adam was the God of this world. It was Adam's sin that caused Adam to fall from being the God or the ruler of this world to Satan ascending to be the God or the ruler of this world, according to 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Then Jesus said unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written. How does Jesus know? What does Jesus know about getting rid of the devil? Quote the word, you can get rid of the devil. Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Notice what happens if you stick to the word. The devil will leave, and God will work. The devil will leave, and God will work. Turn back with me to Second Kings chapter 3. I love this story. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with what we're talking about this morning. I just like the story. Second Kings chapter three. Uh, I don't want to read the whole thing. Um, Jehoram was um, the son of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. The tribes have been split, and the um, uh, the Moabites are the enemies of Israel. And so the king of Israel goes to the king of Judah. King of Judah is just and upright. Uh, Jehoram is Ahab's father. Ahab was the most wicked king in Israel's history. Jehoram's pretty close. 
And so Jehoram goes to Jehoshaphat and says, we've got a common enemy. You need to come and help me. And Jehoshaphat, without checking with the Lord about it or anything, Jehoshaphat says, yeah, okay. We're kin. We're related. So I'll go with you. And um, then the king of uh, uh, Samaria, I think, was with him as well. And and there were three kings anyway that's going out against uh, uh, the Moabites. And uh, so Jehoshaphat, the good king, asked the evil king of Israel, which way we're going to go. And the evil king of Israel says, well, we're going to go this way through the wilderness and we'll come in from the east and so forth. And that way we'll surprise them and winds up taking them to where within seven days journey, any direction they're without water. Now, Jehoshaphat made a lot of mistakes here. Jehoshaphat is not lily white in this. He's not, he's not in a position to go to God and say, Hey, wait a minute. You told me to do this and now we're in trouble or anything like that. He's making his own plans instead of checking with the Lord. So now they get in a place where they're seven days walk away from water, which means it's death no matter what happens. And the king of Israel says, oh, look at what God did. God brought us out here to kill us. Well, God didn't do anything. You're the idiot that walked you out there. This is so typical of the way people operate toward God today. They get themselves in trouble and then say, why did God let this happen? Makes me want to bite a nail in half. Well, I don't know why God let this happen. And I'm thinking, God didn't do this. You're the idiot that did. But you don't say things like that. You're real kind, you know. You just smile and say, well, God will help you, you know. Let's find the way out. So anyway, Jehoshaphat winds up saying, uh, well, maybe I can start reading here. Verse 11. Jehoshaphat said, is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him. Now, under the old covenant, people found out the plan of God through the prophets. That's unscriptural today. Because the Bible doesn't say for as many as are led by prophets, they're the sons of God. It says for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. In other words, everything that the prophet knew under the old covenant, you can know today. The direction of God that the prophet would get for the, for the nation of Israel, you can get for yourself and your family today. You've got the same spirit of God that he had in greater measure. You've got the life of God within you. One of the the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphath, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elijah said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? I like these guys. These Old Testament prophets were rough. You may think that it's a step outside of love for me to call people idiots and stuff like that. I got it from the prophets. (laughs) And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father. Now his father was Ahab. Remember Ahab and his wife Jezebel had the prophets of Baal and Elijah did the big thing on Mount Carmel and killed 450 of the prophets single-handedly because God answered by fire and all that kind of stuff. So Elisha is saying, you don't need to come to me. You've got prophets. You go to them. Get thee to the prophets of thy father and the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. It's interesting to me how people that know nothing about God seem to be the ones with the loudest mouths. That's still true today. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely 
Were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, here's the word of the Lord. And he said, thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, you shall not see wind, neither you sh- shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water that you may drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. Now notice verse 18. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. There's seven days journey from any water in any direction. And he says, it's not going to rain. You're not going to see any wind. There's going to be no storm, nothing that produces rain like you're used to seeing water. But God's going to cause this whole valley to be full of ditches. So much so you better get ditch. It's going to cause this whole valley to be full of water. So much so you better dig ditches so you can catch it. What does that indicate? It's going to be moving. If it's rain, don't need ditches. Everybody can just open their mouths and look up. But this is moving water. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. And he will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. You shall smite every fenced city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop all the wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. And it came to pass in the morning that when the meat offering was offered, that behold, there came water by the way of Edom. Now, that's the way they've just come from. And the country was filled with water. There's two things about this that it's important for you to see. It goes on to tell how that... um, uh, uh, the Moabites came to that valley and the, they saw the sun reflecting off the water that was in the ditches. And they said to themselves, oh, that's blood. These guys have gotten out here, gotten in trouble. And so now they turned on each other and they killed each other. Let's just go down there and pick the, pick up all the spoil and take all the goods away. And they came down there and got slaughtered. They came down thinking that they were just going to carry off the stuff and they got slaughtered. But there's two things about this that I think it's important for you to see. Number one, it says it came by the way of Edom. In other words, it came from where they just came from, where they knew there was no water, where there is no sea. Now, folks, this is the effect of a tidal wave or a tsunami where water just flows into the valley from a place that they come from that they know there is no water for seven days' journey. So I've got a question for you. Has this water been traveling for seven days? Tell me what happened here. I don't know. I'm asking a real question. What happened here? Has this water been traveling for seven days? There's no historical record of it any other way. No record in any history, ancient history or otherwise, that tells about any other place or land or or territory that's been affected by this water. And secondly, if it had come from any other direction, the Moabites would have known about. If it came from where they were heading then the Moabites would have seen it or known about it because it came through their territory. So God did it in such a way that not only provided for them, but it also enabled them to defeat their enemies. Now, can I ask you something? Has God changed? Does he care more for Israel, his servants, than he cares for you, his children? The Bible says he loves his children more than he does his servants. And look at what he did for his servants. But look at what they had to do. They had to act on the word that they heard. Who, in their right mind, having been seven days without water, wants to start digging ditches in dry, arid, wilderness territory? 
Anything magical about digging ditches that makes water? Not in my experience. I've dug a lot of ditches and hadn't hit water yet. Notice it was simple action taken by the inspiration of the word. You remember over in uh, Luke chapter 5? Talks about Peter. Jesus was teaching the multitudes. They were crowding in on him. He was down by the Sea of Galilee. They were pressing upon him on the seashore. And he saw Peter and, and James and John. They had boats, fishing boats. And so he asked Peter, he said, can I use your boat? Jumped in the boat, pushed out a little bit from the land. He sat down. The people couldn't walk into the water to get him. So they had to stop. They sat down on the seashore. And he taught the people. Afterwards, he told Peter, let's go out in the middle and let your nets down for a catch of fish. And Peter said, Master, we have toiled all the night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And they got the biggest catch of fish they ever got. It took their friends, took James and John coming out there with the other boat to fill the, uh, to, to pull the nets in. And the boats got so full that they both almost sank. Now, did he do anything different than he had done all night long? No, he just did it at the word of God. I think so often people are looking to feel the power of God before they act on something. And that's not how it works. The word of God is the power of God. So when you act on the word, when you do what the word of God says, that's what manifests the power of God. Without acting on the word, he's got nothing to manifest power toward. We sit back, we meaning the church world, sits back and says, oh, God, love us enough to do something about this. Well, he loved you enough. He loved you enough to give you the word, which was his power. He loved you enough to give you a way out every time. Now, think about what the Bible is. The Bible is full of stories that tell about people that acted on the word of God and got miraculous results. You remember Daniel and the three Hebrew children? They put the word of God first in their lives. They said, we reject the king's meat, even after they were taken captive. They talked to the dean of the school that was instructing them in the ways of, of, you know, well, in a lot of ways, astrology and stuff like that, occult stuff. But they said, we don't want to eat the king's meat because this violates the law of Moses. So we want you to let us put the word of God first in our lives. Test us out for seven days and see how it works. Well, it worked great. It caused them to be fairer in appearance and, and fatter in flesh and everything. They looked better than the people that were eating the other stuff because they put the word first. They're just simply eating, but they're eating because they put the word first in their lives. And not only that, it says it made these four kids, young men, wiser than all of the instructors. Why? Because they put the word of God first in their lives. They're not doing any more schoolwork than the other ones are, but they did it by putting the word first in their lives. Now, each one of these four young men wind up going on to something else that they put the word first in their lives and it saved their life. Daniel put the word first in his life and it saved him from the lion's den. He didn't do anything anybody else did except he honored God by putting the word first in his life. And it saved him from the mouth of the lions. What about the other three? The other three refused to bow down to the Nebuchadnezzar's statue because they put the word first in their lives and it saved them from the burning fiery furnace. They walked through the thing. Jesus joined them. They're in the middle of the fire praising God. Septuagint says they're singing praises unto God. The Apocrypha, I don't know if it's, if it's something to be trusted or not, but the Apocrypha even tells what they sang in the middle of the fiery furnace. It's a pretty good song. 
Not sure about the tune, but the words are great. What about David? David found out who God was because he put his word first. He found out who he was when he protected the sheep against the lion and the bear. And as a result, it caused him to be willing to go out against a giant, to defeat an enemy that was so much greater than him, nobody gave him a half a chance. But because he had found out who God was, how did he find out? By putting the word first in his life. He found out who God was, defeated the giant, became the king of Israel. What about the children of Israel going into the promised land? They defeated enemies that were greater than them. They were outnumbered. They were outmanned. Their enemies had greater weapons than them. And as long as they kept the word first in their lives, they never lost a battle. Never. The Bible's full of stories. And they're all with the same theme. And that one same theme recurring theme throughout the Bible is those that put the word of God first in their lives. God always saves. God always delivers. God always comes through. Proverbs 14, verse 29, I think it is, says the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. The fear of the Lord. What does that mean? The fear of the Lord is defined in the scripture as being a doer of the word. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence in his children who shall have a place of refuge. Whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is your conquering. This is your conquest. This is your victory with which you conquer the world, even your faith in his word. When Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, he's saying, here's how to activate the life of God. Here's how to tap into that abundant life. That will provide deliverance. That will provide rescue. Folks, the word of God is settled. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said it and shall he not do it? Has he spoken it and shall he not make it good? It's impossible for God to lie. Matthew 3 verse 6. God said, I am the Lord. I change not. New Testament. James chapter 1 verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. From the father of lights. Talking about God, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God's always the same. Hebrews 8. Is that right? Hebrews 8. Hebrews says that the word of God, the counsel of God is immutable. That means unchanging. And it also says in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. His word cannot fail. The only thing that can fail is people standing on it. You can fail to stand. But as long as you are truly standing, as long as you're confessing the word in the face of the problem, you can't go under. The only thing the devil can try to do is try to distract you, try to get your footing off of the word of God. Because as long as you have sure footing on his word, you cannot go under. God created you for miracles. Now, they may not be miracles that everybody sees out in public. But he created you for miracles in your own life. He created you for miracles to overcome every work of the enemy, every work of the law of sin and death in your own life. He created you to defeat the devil in every aspect. You know the greatest joy God gets 
It's not that Jesus defeated the devil. That's done. The greatest joy God gets in life, in your life, is when you exercise Jesus' victory over the devil. Because now God sits in heaven and says, look at what my kids are doing. Whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes him, overcomes the world, even our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be doers of your word. Thank you, Father, that your life is activated by the word of God. When we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives, the life of God comes into us. That life of God is imparted to us. When we confess the word of God in the face of sickness, healing is manifested in our lives. When we confess the word in the face of lack, provision is manifested in our lives. When we've confessed the word in any and every area, the life of God comes to bear. Thank you, Father, that we cannot go under when we stand upon your word. Because your word is truth and forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Jesus said, Multiple times, heaven and earth shall pass away, but the word of God shall never fail. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to live by your word and not by our senses. Teach us, Lord, to live by your word and not by our feelings. Teach us, Lord, to live by what we see in the scripture, when what we see that you have said and declared, and not by what we see around us. Because everything in this life, everything in this world is subject to change, but your word can never change. Thank you, Father, that victory is ours. Say that after me. Victory is mine. I am born of God. Therefore, I overcome the world. And this is the victory. My victory that overcomes the world, that overcomes sickness, that overcomes sin, that overcomes lack. My victory is my faith. In God's word, I believe God's word because it can never fail. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being part of our family. We love you.